0: All right, let me start with inviting you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, I gave Joe David a compliment in the first service. I'm going to do it again. Uh, It's been so long. I mean, I know we've been doing it on Wednesday nights, but singing from the songbooks. And it surprised me this morning when I heard him say, Mark this number for their invitation song, and I thought, good job. It's been 20 years since we've had to say something like that. So thank you, Joe David, for adjusting on songs this weekend uh, with our big shock that uh, we can't use PowerPoint today. How many of you are visual learners? Okay, a lot of you are. I'm an auditory learner, uh, so this is easy for me to listen to a sermon, but every week I design the PowerPoint to try to help you Follow along, images, bullet points, all that. Well, we don't have that luxury today. So take notes, open your Bible, be willing to follow along. And if you are taking notes, let me tell you this from the beginning. I'm going to try to answer two questions about trials. Uh, The first question is when. The when of trials. And the second question is where. So when and where or what we're focusing on before the sermon's over. I'm going to try to answer those two questions according to James. So say it with me, everybody, on the count of three. One, two, three. When and where. Some of you didn't know what we were about to say, but when and where is what we're going to try to cover. Let's we'll start by reading verse 2 through 4 for the third week in a row, and probably last week we'll read these three verses. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. My brothers and sisters, whenever... You face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So have you heard of this family who lives in Malibu, California? There's a couple that are in their 50s, and they live in this beautiful beach house that's right off the Pacific Ocean. So you walk out the back door, past the patio, you're in the sand, and then you're in the water. It's a beautiful place to live. But what's cool about where they live is their their adult children and their grandchildren live right next door to them. So every day, whenever they want to, they can spend time with their kids, with their grandkids, and then they're right there on the beach. So the kids are never bored because there's always something to do. And then on the other side of this couple is their aging parents. Their parents are now in their 80s, but they're in perfectly good health. So this couple has their parents next door to them, their kids and grandkids. They're right there on the beach. They're enjoying the beautiful weather in Malibu, California. Have you heard of this family? I would say no. You haven't heard of this family because I made them up and because I don't think that this family exists. I mean, truthfully, we can look at other people and be jealous and say, I wish I could live that kind of life. But there is no human being, no matter how great things may seem on the surface, that does not experience trials. There's no human being who does not experience hardship, broken relationships, sickness, and we're all going to experience death. Nobody's exempt from that. Now, some lives may be more tragic than others. I get that we all go through trials. So one of the sub-themes that we're looking at in James that we're starting with is this sub-theme of trials. I started talking about this last Sunday. kind of dove into those three verses in verse 2 through 4. And I want to tell you about briefly how my last seven days has, have gone. It's interesting when you talk about trials, when you preach about it, and then things start to go south. Well, I told you last Sunday morning... I'm here, but don't shake my hand. My, I had, my throat was burning. Well, I've been sick all week. Uh, I never went to the doctor, but I took antibiotics because I called the doctor. My kids got sick. They were running high fever. They go to the doctor. My daughter gets strep throat. Uh, so we got antibiotics, doctor's visits. And then my son's fever is so high that we're debating whether or not to take him to the emergency room on multiple nights. Go back to the doctor. He now has mono. Uh, and then what that's led to is a lot of sleepless nights. And I need sleep, because when you're not sleeping, it I mean, it does something to every fiber of your being. That's how the week has gone. Have I gone through a trial? Well, I would say so. According to the way that James describes trials in chapter 1, is various trials, could be trials of any kind. Is it minor? Yes. What I just described to you as a minor trial, still a trial. Well, the week has been all messed up, so Fridays, we're normally off on Fridays because Sundays and Saturday nights are so busy, so I try to view Friday as a sacred day. Well, it's been so crazy this week that I had to spend Friday working on that PowerPoint for you visual learners. I spent all Friday morning working on my sermon PowerPoint, on the whole service, putting the songs together, putting the welcome together, all that stuff. Then I, when I finish, I check my email, hey, the building's been struck by lightning, some things may not work. We come up here Friday afternoon, we're working on it, hey, the one thing that's not going to work is that camera back there for live stream, and we're not going to be able to project anything, and I'm thinking, awesome, I spent all that time working on the PowerPoint. Is that a minor trial? Yes. But last week, one of the words that I used to describe trials is this word resistance. I said there's no resistance, no growth. And for me, since I preached that, it feels like there's been resistance at every turn this week. So my answer to the first question of when, this question when, it's kind of a strange way of answering it, but this is how it answered. It's not if we're going to face trials, it's when we are going to face trials. It's not if we will face trials in life, it is when we will face trials, because to be a human being means that you are going to face trials. That's why in verse 2, James says, whenever, I try to emphasize that when I was reading it, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now we spent the whole sermon last Sunday looking at those three verses, very powerful way to start his letter, and what we looked at was the positive potential of going through trials in life. What's the positive potential? Well, the positive potential is character development, and it can lead to maturity. It's not an automatic promise, but we're looking at a mature faith here in the book of James. And going through trials, persevering through them can lead to maturity. What we're looking at today is we're going to switch gears. We're going to look at verse 13 through 19 for the remainder of this lesson. And so James switches from the positive potential of trials to the negative potential of trials. When you go through trials in life, uh, we may be a little bit weaker. We may be looking for a way to escape. We may be a little more susceptible to sin. And so now he switches to, under the same category I think of trials, to temptations. Look at verse 13 through 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now keep your spot there in James 1. And we're going to spend a few minutes on verse 13 and 14. As I was researching for this lesson, I came across this story. It happened last year as a news report that Yahoo first came out with. Uh, There was a woman who was participating in Lent. Anybody know what Lent is? You know, it happens uh, every, not the Lent in your pocket, but the Lent that the Christian traditions around the world uh, participate in each year. It's 40 days leading up to Easter, where something that you love, something that you enjoy, you give it up for 40 days to focus on Christ until Easter. So this woman says she's going to give up eating meat products or any animal products for 40 days. She didn't make it till Easter. She went into McDonald's one day and she ate a cheeseburger and she completely ruined her time of Lent and broke her fast. Now that happens. We have strong appetites, temptations are strong. That's not what caught my attention. What caught my attention is that she is suing McDonald's for moral damage. I don't know if it's going to actually work, but that, that is so silly and ridiculous sounding that... She broke her fast, and she said it's because of an advertisement she saw for chicken nuggets and cheeseburgers, and she couldn't resist herself. And it's not her fault. It's McDonald's fault. Amen. Yeah, I don't like McDonald's. My kids do. But anyways, what even as silly as ridiculous as that is, suing McDonald's for moral damage, it does uncover what I think is a human tendency that we all have. And it's the human tendency to place the blame, shift the blame to someone else or something else. I'm going to deviate for just a minute from James 1, and, and I'm going to go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. You know the story, Adam and Eve, God creates them, He places them in the Garden of Eden, and there's one thing that they're not supposed to do, eat from the fruit of the tree of life, but they do that. When God confronts Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11, He asks him the question, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So Adam fesses up in verse 12. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What's Adam doing right there? Shifting the blame. He's saying, Yes, I did eat this but I'm not totally in the wrong because it's really not my fault. She, the woman you put here, she's the one that made me do it. And then God turns to Eve in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 3. And He said to the woman, what is this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So what is Eve doing? Shifting the blame, saying I did do this, but it was the serpent that you put here that tempted me to do this. So from the very first sin that we see in the Bible, sin enters the world automatically when in the presence of God, how can we blame someone else or something else? They play the blame game. And we often say things like, it's not my fault. If you're a parent raising children, you've probably heard that quite a bit. Not my fault. If you're a teacher, you've probably heard your students say, it's not my fault. I didn't turn in my homework. It's not my fault I got in trouble. It's that other person's fault. We like to point fingers. We like to shift blame. I I wrote down just a few generic examples that maybe you can relate to about how we shift blame, how we point fingers. One of those is, if there's anything that goes wrong in society, where do we point the finger? Well, usually we say, it's the government's fault, That's why things are crumbling in our society. It's the government. It's that other political party that I don't like. If a kid gets in trouble at home, I hear this a lot in my house, it's her fault. It's his fault. Like It's not my fault that I got in trouble. It's my brother's fault who keeps coming into my room. We want to shift the blame a little bit. If you've ever felt intellectually inferior around a group of people, I've been there before. People are using big words and you don't fully understand it. Whose fault is that? It's the school system's fault that raised me. They didn't give me a good enough education, and now I feel a little bit out of touch with these words they're using. If we have ever received a bad evaluation at work, it's not my fault. It's that coworker that you make me work with and they're not holding their end. And so now my performance has been judged because of it. It's coworkers' fault. It's a boss's fault. If you've ever had a moral failure, and sometimes this happens, especially if it's public. We want to point fingers at the church. It's the church's fault. They didn't prepare us for this. Or if a church is declining in attendance, which that's happening all across our country right now. If the churches are cli- declining in attendance, whose fault is it? Well, it's the preacher's fault. Is Sermons aren't engaging enough or it's the song service's fault or it's the elder's fault or it's the older generation's fault because they're really stubborn or where the older generation may look at the younger generation and say it's their fault because they think everything is about them. we got to blame somebody. We don't have to, but we think we do. If you Anybody go to a high school football game this weekend? College football? I know some of you did. It's football season. If you follow a team... And I hear this all the time. If your team loses a close game, whose fault is it? The ref's fault, right? It's amazing. No matter what, if I go to a Greenville game, a White Oak game, a Mount Pleasant game, they lose. And when I'm walking out, I hear people, that was a horrible call. You know, it's always, everybody's always the victim, and the ref is always out to get you, right? We want to blame somebody. This woman could not finish her fast during Lent, so she blames McDonald's. We probably blame more than we realize. Now, where am I going with this? All right, We started with James 1, 13 and 14. So let's go back to that. What I hear James saying, first of all, in verse 13, is when you're tempted to sin, don't blame God for the temptation. James point blank tells us God is not tempting you. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. So don't blame God. Now you can look at the trials that you go through in life and say, does God allow it? Yeah. I mean, we live in this crazy world and bad things happen to us. Nobody's exempt from that. Maybe we could say God allows it, but God is not tempting you. So James is saying, don't blame God. This old human tendency that we have all the way back to Adam and Eve. Don't blame God when you're tempted, but I also can see him saying, don't blame the devil when you give in to sin. Sometimes we say, the devil made me do it. We do something wrong, we hurt somebody, we sin, the devil made me do it. But James, in this classic text on temptation, he does not mention the devil. Now you read the rest of the book of James, he does. In James chapter 2, he says the demons believe in God and they shudder. All right? So he's aware of spiritual warfare. And chapter 3, he mentions wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from above, but there's also this earthly wisdom that's demonic. And then in chapter 4, he says, flee from the devil, and he will flee for you. So James is very well aware of spiritual warfare and the devil, but in this text, he does not mention the devil. Instead, in verse 14, he's saying, you take ownership over this. Don't blame God for the temptation. Don't blame the devil when you give in to sin, but look within yourself. I'll read verse 14 again says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So the language that he's using in verse 14 this dragged away and enticed. It's hunting, fishing language. I know we're in East Texas. Any of you guys like to go hunting, fishing? Women? Anybody? Oh, some of you? Uh, Aaron, do you really? I didn't know that about you. Okay, anyways, so that threw me off. But... I thought a lot more people would raise their hands. Anyways, a lot of people like to go hunting, fishing. This is the language that he's using. Dragged away means to lure in your animal. That's hunting language. Entice, that's fishing language. It means, literally, the Greek means to bait or to bait a hook. So I've never been much of a fisherman. I'll go occasionally just for social purposes. But this year... My kids have had a desire to go fishing. They've had this interest in fishing, and it started with, we live in White Oak by Pinnock Park, and there's a pond out there. There's a little concrete slab that you can walk up to, and back in May, when we had water, there was fish swimming around. And so both of my kids went fishing that night because they were sticking their hand in there trying to grab the fish. I didn't realize that's what we were doing, but they called it fishing. Well, the next day, my son woke up early, and it's amazing how his mind works, and he said, let's go back to the pond, let's go fishing again, and he went outside and he got our pool net. And so we went back to the pond to try to scoop up a fish with a pool net. That didn't work either. So eventually, we bought our kids a fishing pole, and we explained to them, this is how it works. You put a bait on the hook, the fish sees the bait, it wants that worm or whatever it is, and it's not going to see the hook, and that's how you catch the fish. So we've been fishing a few times since then the right way. What James is saying is that's how temptation works. You're dragged away and enticed. You want the bait, but you don't see the hook. You don't think about the consequences. A mouse trap is also a good example. Uh, every church that I've either worked at or interned at at some point has a problem with mice. I'm just gonna tell you, they're not in the room right now, but they're somewhere in the ceiling in the building. I just be aware of that. At the church I worked at previously, we had problems with mice. I could hear them in the ceiling running around. And it didn't bother me until I saw a pretty large mouse run across my office one day. And then I started zipping up my backpack because I didn't want to find an unpleasant surprise when I got home. And I decided it was time to do something about it. So I set traps, put a piece of cheese, put peanut butter on the trap, and it works. The mouse smells the food, sees the food, wants the food, boom, the trap gets it. That worked for me for a while until I would come in the next day and the cheese was gone. The trap had been tripped, but there was no mouse on it. And I was like, what's happening? And somebody said, I think it's a rat. And either it's outsmarting you or it's just too strong for the trap. So we just poisoned them and killed them either way. But (laughs) what James is saying here in verse 14 is that's how temptation works, right? The cheese always hides the snare. We're lured in by something. We're enticed by it. And we don't really think about the consequences and the damage that it may cause. Or we go for the bait, and we don't even think about how we're about to get hooked into something. We're dragged away and enticing, says it's by our own evil desire in verse 14. Some translations may use the word lust. And that's a fine translation, but when we think of lust, we probably only think of sexual temptation. And that is definitely a part of it. But desire is a, is a broader term which is basically a, a strong, intense longing for an improper object or anything that would get in, way, in the way of our pursuit of God. So any desire that's improper that gets in our way of our pursuit of God, that's what James means by our own evil desires. So you look at verse 13 and 14, don't blame, don't blame God, don't blame Satan. Look within yourself. And he goes from a hunting-fishing metaphor, and then in verse 15, he goes to a, a birth example. He says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. We're all going to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted, but all sin begins with temptation. And what James gives us in verse 15 is the process of sin or the life cycle of sin. It starts with that desire. We're dragged away and enticed. And that gives birth to sin in our life. Sin, when it is fully mature, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now that similar language to what Paul uses in some of his letters could be spiritual death, separation from God. Sin could lead to a literal death. Sin could lead to... Death and relationships that we have with others, sin kills. Sin has consequences. There's a life cycle to it. But on the flip side, in verse 16 and 17 and 18, he says, Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Verse 17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. We live in a fallen world. Is surrounded by sin. A lot of the trials that we go through in life could actually be because we live in this fallen world and it could be the result of other people's sins. Sometimes that just creates problems in our own life and creates trials. Sometimes, though, we go through trials in life that are self-induced. You live a lifetime of choosing to sin and then you have to deal with the consequences. It could be something like you have health problems because of a lifetime of drug abuse. You could have marriage problems because you've neglected your marriage or you've had an extramarital affair or whatever it may be, and that affects your marriage. You could have relationship problems because you hurt somebody. Sometimes we bring trials on ourselves, self-induced trials. But what James is saying here in verse 17 is that what God gives us, well, what He doesn't give us is temptation. He's not the one tempting us. He does give us good and perfect gifts what are these good and perfect gifts? Well, I could go down the list. Wisdom. God gives us wisdom. That's a good and perfect gift. Read through the whole book of James, and we'll get to the sub-theme of wisdom here in just a few weeks. You ask for wisdom. You don't doubt He will give you wisdom. What is a good and perfect gift? Well, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus tells us it's the Holy Spirit. When you ask, you will receive. And the good gift that God wants to give you is the Holy Spirit. You can look at the entire New Testament. A good and perfect gift is forgiveness of sins. That's something. That's a good and perfect gift that through the death on the cross that Jesus gives us. A good and perfect gift is eternal life. James has already talked about receiving the crown of life in verse 12. Maybe I could go on, but you get the idea. That, that's the good and perfect gift that God gives us. Our Heavenly Father, Father of the heavenly lights who makes the sun, moon, and stars. He does not change like shifting shadows. And these good and perfect gifts are coming down. The way that that language is used is it's continuous. He keeps lavishing these gifts upon us. And then in verse 18, he goes back to the birth example. He chose to give us birth, like he uses that word in verse 15, but this time he says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all He created. The first time He mentions birth is desire gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now He's saying, on the flip side, you can contrast that with God gives us birth through the Word of truth, and that leads to being a firstfruit of all He created. So that's the text I wanted to cover today. But I told you from the beginning, there's two questions that I wanted to try to answer. The first question is, When? And I've already said, it's not if you're going to go through trials, it's when. Just expect them. Now the second question is where. And here's how I would develop that a little further. It's not where the temptation comes from when you're going through a trial. It's within. I think that's the main idea of what James is saying in this text. You go through trials, there's probably going to be temptations that come along with it. It's not where does it come from, but he's saying look within yourself. Instead of pointing the finger and blaming like Adam and Eve did, like we always have this tendency of doing, blaming God for the temptation, blaming Satan for giving in to sin, or blaming other people, or blaming the culture around us. Look within yourself, and we're looking at what a mature faith looks like. And what I see James saying, my interpretation of this, is a mature faith, and somebody who is maturing in their faith is somebody who owns up to their sin. You own it instead of blaming someone else or looking for an excuse, you own the decisions that you made in your life. We do live in a culture that just like dangles that bait in front of us constantly. I could do a whole separate lesson on the constant temptation around us. But what I see James saying is you still have a choice on how you're going to respond. You have a responsible choice that you can make, and James wants us to choose wisely. And I think as a church, as part of the reason the church exists, is that we can spur each other on to make wise decisions. So, as I get ready to conclude this lesson, I'm going to read one more verse from the end of James. I I did this last week. James kind of gives his own invitation in James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5, and verse 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The invitation that James gives us is to confess and to pray. Uh, And here in just a second, when I offer this invitation, I want to be clear on what I'm saying and not saying. If you need to come up front and talk to me or one of our elders and confess a sin and bring it before the church, you can do that if that's what you need to do. But I also think that confession sometimes may just take place one-on-one. It doesn't always have to be in front of a huge group of people. It could be that here in just a minute you grab a friend or someone and you say, can I talk to you later today? Or can we slip out in the back? I want to talk to you about something. And you spend that time confessing. Or you talk to one of our elders or elders' wives. I had a friend just about a month ago. I had dinner with him. It was the first time I had seen him in a long time. We had a great conversation, we caught up, we shared old stories, all that good stuff, talked about sports, but towards the end he got real serious and he said, okay, the Bible tells us to confess our sins to each other. He said, so I need to confess a few things. And we spent the next 30 minutes talking about that and praying together, and I was proud of him. I said, thank you for being a good example for me today, is that instead of just leaving on a high note, he said, no, there's some things I need to confess. And God was with us in that moment. And we're going we're to struggle with temptation. We're going to give in to sin. And so James comes back with later in the letter, take ownership over that. But you can be healed from it. You can confess sins to each other. You can, be pray, you can pray for that, be, be forgiven, and live into, grow into this mature faith. So if we can help you with that in any way today, we're going to stand up. We're going to sing that song that you marked earlier and we're going to continue to worship. Come talk to me, one of our elders, or grab somebody if you need to. Let's stand and continue to sing. There's. A-